Well, it's that time of the week again. It's time for Chit Chat Across the Pond. This is episode number 677 for March 20th, 2021. And I'm your host, Allison Sheridan. This week, our guest is Bart Bouchatz with Programming by Stealth Installment 112 of X. How are you doing today, Bart? I am doing just fine. That's a big number. And it's not even in hex. Like, that's in decimal. Yeah, yeah. I was thinking about that when I was listening to uh, uh, Let's Talk Photography and Let's Talk Apple, how many numbers you're getting up to. You've been at this a while. I don't think I can call you the new kid on the block anymore. No, I had too much gray hair in my beard for that. <laughs> I love it. Well, I've been itching to get back to uh, talking about Git. What you got for us today? Well, we are moving into the next very important Git chapter. So we started our discussions of all of this by talking about version control in general. And we said that the universe sort of falls into two big groups of version control. You have the client-server model and you have the peer-to-peer model. And we said that uh, Git was a peer-to-peer protocol and that that, you know, that was the model it used for communicating between repositories. And then we promptly focused entirely on how a single repository works because we needed to get that under our belt, and we've ignored this ability for multiple repositories to interact with each other. Which is well, head-bending point. And crazy, but the point of the whole thing, right? Right. I mean, it was invented yeah. by Linus Torvalds so that lots of people could collaborate together on the Linux kernel. That's massive collaboration. That's the point of Git. And so far, we've been dealing with our one Git repository. So we've obviously... You know, I mean, it was important to lay that foundation because if you don't understand what a Git repository does, you have no chance of understanding what happens when they start to communicate with each other without tying yourself into horrible knots. Mm. So, I, you know, I don't, I don't think we've done it wrong, but it is now time to massively expand our horizon. Okay. Uh, th- this is going to be one of those foundation episodes that I think you'll probably end up bookmarking and coming back to because there's a lot of Git jargon that we have to define. So Git uses English words, but it doesn't use them as English. It uses them as Gittese, right? It's it's a jargon. So while in English, the word push has a meaning and the word remote has a meaning, in Git, it has a much, much, much narrower and much more specific meaning. Hmm. So we need to get familiar with these terms and understand that when we say them in Git, we don't mean a vague concept. We mean something extremely specific. And until we get the words right, we can't really start doing it because we won't understand what we're doing. But from next week on, lots of doing. But for today, it's foundation. I I am going to confess here something I've confessed publicly elsewhere is that I gave Bart a hard time when we were first... Well, I don't know, for the first three or four years straight, uh, when I would try to describe something and he would stop me and make me use the right words. And uh, I listened to an episode of Code Newbies where this guy described how he taught himself to code and he didn't know the right words for anything. And then he went into his job and he couldn't communicate with anybody. He couldn't explain (laughs) what he was trying to even ask his questions because he didn't know the foundational words. So as frustrating as it was, it was probably the right thing to do. But uh, I will not complain about having to learn the right words and exactly what they mean. Oh, good. It also really helps Googling. It's so much easier to get a sensible answer out of Google when you know the words. Because Google is really bad at reading your mind. Well, unless they're selling you for advertisement, then they're really good at it. But anyway, that's not here nor there. So it's a peer-to-peer model. 
So peer-to-peer means that at a technological level, a repository is a repository is a repository. There is no hierarchy. Technologically, all Git repositories that are collaborating together are equals. They're all peers. It is a peer-to-peer approach. So that there's does no not mean main authoritative source? Not technologically. Whatever oh, okay. structure you choose to impose, you do so above the technology. You do so in terms of access control, in terms of permissions, in terms of policies, in terms of procedures, in terms of convention. Hmm. But you don't do it in terms of the raw Git technology. Git just says that there are repositories. They can talk to each other. They talk to each other by this mechanism. And at a Git level, everyone is equal. Okay. But you decide what stuff means. So if you you decide that you're working together with a group of people and you're going to have a Git repository in the cloud, well, then you decide among yourselves that the one in the cloud is authoritative mm-hmm. and all of you will take changes from the cloud, do something and put your changes into the cloud. So you will, by practice, turn the cloud into the important copy. But there's nothing about the technology that says that that's true. It's just you've decided that. Correct. So that's important to understand. Now, what that actually means is that Git is spectacularly flexible because it will bend to whatever structure you need, which can range literally from a few friends ad hoc developing an open source thingy together where there is no structure, no policy, no procedure. You just send some commits over and back to each other. All the way through to something like a defense contractor where the code has to go through five layers of review and there's 10 pages of forms to change a one to a zero somewhere. Git can fit perfectly into those two extremes and everything in between. It really is just up to a team or even, in fact, a single person who wants to use multiple repositories and there's good reasons to do it even as as a lone developer you decide how you're going to use this tool. So that is both fantastic and terrifying. <laughs> we're, we're back to the same scenario we were in before, where we were talking about branching strategies. The technology lets you branch any which way you like, but if you would like to have some sanity in your life, you'd better figure out what you want to do and why. Right. And so it's the same when it comes to structuring how your multiple Git repositories will interact with each other. So. That's the first point I really want to hammer home. Git does not enforce a hierarchy. There is no Git server and Git client. There is a Git repository and a Git repository and another Git repository and maybe more Git repositories, but they're all the same. Every Everyone is the same. It's just, they're all just Git repositories. The other thing I really want to hammer home, the second point I think it's really important to take away from today is that every actor gets a repository. So if you're working with someone You work in your repository, and they work in their repository, and you may end up meeting through a third repository, or you may go direct to each other. But either way, both of you will have your own repository. Even if you have a cloud-hosted repository on GitHub or something, you don't use the GitHub directly. You have your own copy, each of you, which can also talk to the one in the cloud. But everyone has their own copy. Okay. So why don't I say every human gets a repository? Why do I use this strange word, every actor? 
Oh, you did. I did, and that's because it's not just the humans who get one. So if you're working for a team or an organization, the team or organization will almost certainly have a repository which is probably going to be in the cloud and is probably going to be decided by the humans that that one is the boss. So the organization gets a repository. If you're working with an outside contractor, that organization may get a repository too. So all the developers will have a repository, you'll have a repository, your colleagues will have a repository, your team will have a repository, and their team will have a repository. And if you're using Git to push your code all the way to the servers, then every server will have a repository. Interesting. Interesting. And so maybe you have a staging and a production environment. Well, more repositories. Maybe hmm. you have some sort of testing environment. More repositories, right? If, it, if whatever arbitrary structure you put on it as a group of humans, every part of that structure gets a repository. And you've taught us that Git has all of the history of everything that's ever happened, which means Correct. no matter which branch, like maybe the production servers on one branch and the dev servers on a different branch, they still have full knowledge of each other, of the same thing. All of the same information exists. They're just talking to one part of the, the uh, one branch. They will have checked right? out what is appropriate for them. Exactly. So you would probably, a very common approach would be to have a branch called, so we work with a branch called main. Mm -hmm. But if we were in a, in a, in a sort of a, if we were in a, a production environment running a web app for real, then we would probably have two effective main branches, one called production and one called staging. And you would okay. deploy to staging and that would trigger a whole bunch of automations that push it out to actual servers and then you run some sort of test suite against it. Mm -hmm. And then a report comes back to a human, maybe an email or something on Teams or whatever, saying, yeah, there was a deploy put out to staging. It passed the automated tests. Go, no, go, question mark. Hmm. And then a human will push a button. And then the other branch, then that will merge staging into production. The act of merging the branches will trigger another automation that will push it out to the production servers. Wow. Okay. And that is, cool. when you hear people talk about a DevOps workflow, that's what they're talking about. Oh. The development and the operations are all part of the one bigger process. And usually, in pretty much every DevOps workflow I've seen in the last decade, the heart of that workflow is Git. Git hmm. repositories everywhere and lots of automations attached to Git events. So when you do a merge, that, that triggers an event. And so you could, in theory, attach a script to that event. Ooh. Now, we haven't done that kind of stuff yet. Now, Helma has done that kind of stuff for us in the repository that's managing the wonderful Taming the Terminal ebook, right? Right. Whenever you put out a new named tag, it triggers the build of another copy of the book. So that is basically just an event that is triggered mm. by the act of committing to main that causes a script to run to make the book. Okay. Okay. And so that's, that is an example okay. of a DevOps workflow in operation. So it's, it's quite powerful. So really, your choices are endless, which is not a very satisfying way for me to leave a conversation. So I'm going to just give you three sample scenarios to get your brain thinking. And these are just samples, right? There are an infinity of other possibilities, but this is just to give you some sort of flavor of what people do with Git repository. So scenario one is a lone developer, right? That's me sitting at home, you sitting at home, our listeners sitting at home. We're coding to scratch our own itch, right? We have a problem to solve. We know how to program. Therefore, we shall solve it. Uh, we 
we're probably nerds. Let's face it, we're writing code. We're probably nerds. We probably have more than one computer. And we're the kind of people who have some sort of network file server on their home network, be it a NAS or some sort of Linux box we've built ourselves. So you know how we how we are, right? Of course, right. I mean, it, it maybe a Drobo, you know, maybe a Synology or some old Dell somewhere running a Raspberry some copy Pi, of, a Raspberry Pi, you know, a Dell Bias running a copy of OpenFiler. Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. So a typical scenario in that kind of case would be that you would have three repositories. So you would have a repository that you consider to be the primary one sitting on the NAS. And that would be sort of your master copy where you're, you know, you back that one up. You might have that tied into, you know, you might be using Backblaze or something to make sure that's safely off to the cloud or whatever. But that's your your sort of primary copy. I'm going to change and then that you to would, main copy, okay? Yeah, I was going to say I used the word primary all over and then four words later managed to throw in a master just to prove how as darn hard as I tried to say <laughs> allow list and deny list because at the moment I'm doing an awful lot of firewalling in work and so I'm I'm finding myself writing emails about stuff being I used to say blacklist and whitelist and now I say block list and allow list anyway it'll probably be another couple of years before we're we're good at it I can only hear it when somebody else does it but okay but <laughs> so your point is that you you decide on your own you've got a primary repository probably the one on the NAS and you consider that the main copy and that's the one you back up and that's when you back up and then you would have a repository on your laptop and a repository on your desktop. Okay. And when you're on your laptop, you work away on that local repository and then you, well, okay, I'm going to, in my show notes, I avoid using buzzwords. Okay. But, well, we'll hold till uh, we get there. Yeah. So you send your changes. <laughs> I have sidestepped one there. You send your changes from the laptop's repository to the one on the NAS. And then you move to your desktop and you fetch the changes from the NAS into the repository on your desktop. You make some more changes and you send them back up to the NAS. And the NAS acts as a bridge. Right. And if you get another machine, well, it just joins the club, right? Uh-huh. Right. So, you know, so again, there's there's a repository for you, the person, and then there's a repository for each of your devices is one way to look at it. But three repositories, and that's a very normal approach. Okay, and and that's just, again, for a lone developer, you could be doing that in your house. Exactly. I or maybe that. Or maybe you could use a cloud service like GitHub or whatever instead of a mm-hmm. NAS. But again, same concept applies. Uh-huh. Scenario two would be a slightly bigger organization, some sort of small open source project. So you have a few other developers, you're managing a small piece of code, as well as managing it, you're also sharing it with the world. And while you allow your trusted co-developers to directly contribute code you want to have some sort of filtering on what others are allowed to do they might be allowed to suggest changes but not actually put them into your repository directly so that's a slightly bigger scenario so in that case you're going to use some sort of cloud service either self-hosted but most likely github or gitlab probably github let's face it they are very much the market leaders here so you'd have a public github repository sitting in the cloud and that would be the primary one by your choosing Mm -hmm. each of the trusted developers would have their own copy of the repository on their local machines and they would be writing their changes straight up into the github copy of the repository and the whole world would have read-only access to the github repository but your trusted people would have read and write access so there's an example of using access controls sorry not access controls permissions so the world has access, but you have permissions on that access. 
So there's you're applying your structure through technological controls. And there's another really cool feature that we're going to skate over for today, but it's possible to suggest commits to mm. someone else's repository. You don't make the commit, you offer it. You suggest it. It's actually um the, the the jargon changes from provider to provider because it's not actually a standard feature of Git. Oh, GitHub invented a new feature and GitLab copied the feature but not the name. So oh, to okay. GitHubers they're called pull requests. But as I say we'll talk about them next time. Okay. So back to the uh having these permissions when uh Helma and Dorothy and I were working on the book uh on the Taming the Terminal book and we didn't let Bart know about it. She had the repository and ownership of it in GitHub, and Dorothy and I were were fetching and sending our changes back and forth to it. Then uh, when we told Bart about it, she gave the repo to Bart, so Bart became the owner of it. But Bart created it in such a way that I am one of the owners of it and so is or have full privileges along yeah. with, with Helma. But other people, everybody else can download it. You could fork it. I mean, I guess you could fork it and add chapters, which would be an odd thing. Do we really want you that? You absolutely but, could, yeah. But yeah. you absolutely could if you wanted to, which would be weird um, yeah. in this particular case, but you could. Right, but the thing is, forking is actually the first step towards offering your changes because you have to offer your changes from somewhere. So the way it would actually work in the open source world, and we will get into this in much more detail in a later installment, but you fork the project, you make the changes that you believe the project absolutely should incorporate, Mm-hmm. And then you offer those commits from your repository back to the original. And then the developers on the original can choose whether or not to accept your suggested commits. Right. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. But that's a case of where there's three of us that, uh, or maybe four, Dorothy too, I forget, but where we have full all read-write privileges, exactly. but everybody else in the world has read privileges. Can read. Yes. And so in reality, there's actually... There's four of us, so there's actually five repositories. There's the one in the cloud, I have one, you have one, Dorothy has one, and uh, Helma has one. Right, right. So again, lots and lots of repositories. That, that's the key point here, over and over again. And then the last example is really what I've already sort of described as the DevOps kind of a workflow. So you could imagine that you're an e-commerce company selling widgets. So you have a large web store, you have a team of in-house developers. So you're going to self-host something with the same functionality as a GitHub, but it's not going to be public, right? You're going to run it yourself on your own infrastructure, and there are products you can buy to do that, and there's actually open source products you can run to do that yourself. So you can actually run your own private GitHub. It's actually Hmm. GitLab is the product, so you run a private GitLab usually. And then so you would set up a repository that you would consider to be the primary for your, your organization. Each of your developers who are working within your organization would have their own repository on their own machines to work on, and they would have full right access up to the corporation's repository. But the corporation isn't hosting their own infrastructure because they're developing, a, they're delivering a major web app to planet Earth. So they have a partner of some kind that's actually their hosting company. So their partner has another repository. Mm-hmm. And then there's a relationship between your corporate repository and your partner's corporate repository. And so they may offer out, say, a staging and a production branch on their repository. So you would send your changes to whichever branch you wanted. And then they would 
take care of publishing those changes to the actual servers running your actual web app. And in the modern world, those actual servers probably have Git installed and are probably actually using Git to accept those commits and publish them out to planet Earth. So you have servers with repositories, you have organizations with repositories, and you have developers with repositories. There's repositories, repositories, repositories. It's repositories all the way down. All the way down. If there is something involved in the process, it probably has a repository. If you're describing the process and there's a thing, that thing probably has a repository. And that is that is really the one of the most important points to get home today. Is that repositories everywhere. The next thing I want to sort of get across is a very important keyword: local. Right? You'll see it in the Git documentation everywhere. Local just means the repository I'm currently using. Local is me. I'm local. So the one that's on the computer that I'm touching right now. I mean, there could be no. 20 of them on the computer. The one I actually am using, so the folder okay. I am currently in, the one I currently have open in my GUI, it's like okay. you could have 20 on your computer, right? So you probably have programming by stealth and you probably have timing the terminal. So you have at least two. You have one for your clock. You have at least three. So you're going to be using one of them at this moment in time because you have a client open or a terminal open. So Whatever lo- one you're using is local. So local is an adjective. Local repo? Um, it will just be referred to often as local. Right, but I'm trying to figure out what it is. As a proper noun. Are you talking about the local repo? You could certainly describe it that way, but it will actually, the name of the local repo is local. So like the name of your computer on a networking level is localhost. Okay. Git refers to itself as just the word local. Yeah, but local is an adjective and host is a noun. I know. Yeah, I know. I know. Git, use local as a noun. Get over it, I'm afraid. Well, no, it, I, I don't know what you mean by just local. Saying local means me. Local is the noun. No, 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 no. It, it isn't you. It isn't Bart. You're saying it's not the, it's the one it's, that I have open right now on my computer. So if I, if I have source tree or, or Git Kraken with two repos open, they're both okay. local. Okay, one of those tabs is going to be current. When you are using the tab for PBS, at that point in time, PBS is local. If you then command tab to another repository, then that's local. Right? When you're running a git command, you're running it, f- whether it's by clicking or by typing, you are running the command against a specific repository. Yes? Okay. Every git command is from the point of view of the repository I am using this moment in time. Okay. And the, the one name I'm using for that right repository now is local. Is local. Just like you are me, the repository you're using is called local. Okay. Uh, yet I still think it's an adjective even in that context. It is an adjective in English, right? No, in that context. And you use it in your show notes as saying the local repository. <laughs> so It is both. Okay. It was used descriptively as the local repository, and it is also the keyword local means self, means me, means... Okay. So there are times in the documentation when local is used as a noun. As if it was localhost. Okay. Which is Anyway, local is me. I'm local. <laughs> okay. That's the important thing. And then the obvious antonym for local is remote. And so Git describes every repository that's not the one you're using at the moment as a remote. 
Okay. Again, the grammar's all over the place. A remote is not a repository. A remote is a local repository's reference to another repository. They should have called it a link, oh, but they oh, didn't. Oh, I, I, I get it. No, 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 no. I, I can give analogies to it is, is my mother is only my mother because that's her relationship to me. True, when she, yes. When she's looking at herself, she's not her mother. I'm her daughter. It's, it, it, but that could be local and remote. Like, so if, if I've got a copy or I'm in my repo, you are, your repo is remote and mine is local. But if you were to say the same thing, you would say the exact opposite. Mine would be remote and yours would be local because it's as referenced to the one you have open. That is correct. But Git goes a little further than that. So okay. in Git jargon, Git will use the word remote like you've just used it there in the documentation to mean some repository that's not me. So it is definitely used in that context within the documentation. But there's also, because Git loves reusing the same word, <laughs> Git also has the concept of a remote. So not remote as in a concept, but a remote. And a remote is a named link. So I, to, to add a relationship to another repository, I give it a name and a URL. So it's a name value pair, name URL. And that combination of name URL is known as a remote. Okay, you're saying that like that's significant, but I don't know what... That's very significant. I'm gonna do, but I don't know what I'm going to do with that information, so I can't make it be important yet. In my okay, head. so every single relationship between repositories, mm-hmm. every repository that your repository talks to needs to be added to your repository as a remote. So you need to name an URL. So when so, you're interacting with GitHub, so that you have a repository on your computer right now mm-hmm. called PBS mm-hmm. or something like that. I can't remember what I called the repository. Um, and that repository is connected to another copy of that repository in GitHub. Mm-hmm. Your r- local repository has a remote named origin, which maps to the URL of the Git repository. Okay, you just threw in a new word. I and didn't I- throw in a word. It's named origin. It could be named boopity boop. Okay, but I that's I've. I'm I'm ahead of and behind the class at the same time. I'm straddling in this weird world where, like, I see origin all the time, and I have no idea what it means. So that we do need to, you need to explain that. Yes. So what I'm telling you is, for now, origin is like boogers. It could be anything. Okay, but but I'm still trying to figure out a remote. So uh, let's say it's just you and me. You and Mm -hmm. me. We're working at my house. We're on the same network. I've got a repo. You've got a repo. I have a remote that identifies your repo with a name and a URL. Yes. And that pair, name plus URL, is a remote. So that would suggest that every repository knows about every other repository in existence. All of them. No, no. Because you add a remote to your repository. So when you create a repository from scratch, there are no remotes. Okay. Then you oh, add oh. a remote, which is a name you choose and a URL you specify. And why do you, why do you create those? Because w- w- until you create that connection, effectively, your repository is an island. 
Okay, it's standalone. Okay, so as it's soon as I as soon as I send my files up to GitHub, now I have a URL and a name. And you're saying it's the other way around. Actually, you couldn't have sent it to GitHub unless you had added a remote for GitHub. Now, as it happens, you did that without knowing it. Mm-hmm. I did because, a lot without knowing what I was doing. I would push buttons. <laughs> well, correct. One of the buttons you pushed created a remote on your local repository that connects your local repository to GitHub. Okay. And the name that button created for you is Origin. And Origin is always GitHub? Nope. Then what? where did that come from? So by convention and purely by convention, when you create a repository that's a copy of another one, Right. So in this case, the GitHub repository existed first and you created a copy of it. The Git client, pretty much every Git client I have ever, in fact, every Git client I have ever used, when you do that, when you create a copy of another repository, it automatically creates a remote back to where it came from called Origin. Okay. Okay. So if I, if I started a repo on my uh, MacBook Pro, and then I, using a Git client, copied it to my uh, Mac Mini. That would create mm-hmm. my MacBook Pro's repo as a remote named Origin. Correct. Okay. And so Origin is just a convention, but it's kind of a sensible convention. It basically means where I came from. But if if you keep stringing these along, you could have, I could be origin to your repo, your origin to Dorothy's repo. Dorothy's origin is origin to the Helma's repo. Correct. Thankfully, huh. there is actually convention for dealing with one more level of nesting, but we stop, we stop naming them after that. So it's very common, right? Imagine, okay, here's a really good scenario. So... A few, what is it, a half a year ago or so, you noticed that Bootstrap 4, the colors don't pass accessibility because there isn't enough contrast. Right. Now, hypothetically, you could have at that point in time gone to their GitHub, copied it, or forked it to use the lingo, at which point that forked repository would exist in your GitHub account and it would have a remote in it Called Origin connecting to the repository for Bootstrap. Okay. Now that's in your GitHub. Uh-huh. So if you wanted to actually fix the problem, you would then copy that remote onto your laptop. Mm-hmm. So from your laptop, that action would create something called Origin on your laptop, but that doesn't point at Bootstrap. That points at your copy of Bootstrap. Correct. However, GitHub, the the GitHub client, is smart enough to realize that there already was an origin before you copied. And so it makes one more level of indirection called upstream. Huh. Upstream is origin's origin. So in your case, but that's very useful because in an open source world, they're actually all that matters. So origin is your copy sitting in the cloud where your stuff is safe. Upstream is the original open source project. Hmm. So you would make your changes and send them to Origin so that they're safely in the cloud, and you might ask a couple of friends to do some tests or whatever. And mm-hmm. then when you're completely confident that you have genuinely solved the problem and your code is spick, span, and perfect, and then it follows all the style conventions and they're going to love you, mm-hmm. at that point in time, 
you can then offer your change to where it came from, which from the point of view of your Mac is called upstream. Huh. Okay. But that's as far as the convention goes. There is no convention for what's upstream of upstream, right? We stop naming them at that point. Okay. But you could add arbitrarily many remotes, giving them arbitrary names. And a lot of times there might be sensible names. So you might have a remote named after a company you collaborate with. Right. Huh. If you're, if you're, if you're, you know, you're, you're working with, let's say that you, you're managing an app and that app supports a plugin architecture of some kind and you've paid another company to develop a plugin for you. Okay. Well, your repository is going to interact with their repository, but you're not going to call it Origin because it's not where the stuff came from. You're going to call it, you know, my favorite contractor. Right. You're going to, you know, if your contractor is called Bart's Widgets, you might name it Bart Widget. Okay. I don't know that how way, I would do that, but okay. You would say, actually, it's git space remote space add Bart widget followed by the URL. Huh. Okay. So you literally, or in the GUI, you would go to remote add and it will ask you for two pieces of information, a name and a URL. Hmm. So regardless of how you add a remote, it's always those two pieces of information. What do I call this remote and where is it? Hmm. So it's name URL. Look at that. So our remote is a pair. Repository add remote. There you go. And it wants a remote name and a URL path. Look at that. There you go. And if you're on the command line there, the two arguments it's going to need as well. Okay. And you'll find the same in Git Kraken, because remember, all of these GUIs are just wrappers around the command line. Right, right. Okay. So remotes, remotes are how repositories talk to each other. So every repository that your repository talks to, you have to have added as a remote. So if you Mm -hmm. talk to three repositories, well, then you have three remotes and you give them sensible names. But usually you'll find that you actually talk to very few remotes because in scenario one, each of your computers has one remote, which is the one on your NAS. And even if you owned 500 computers, which would be a bit weird, but each of them would still only have one remote, which is the one on your NAS. Right. In scenario two, you're de- you're you know you're up to the two remotes you have upstream and origin. Okay, great. And then in scenario three, you might have a remote for the vendor and a remote for your organization, but that's still only two remotes. So even when you have twenty or thirty people communicating, each person is probably talking back to one or two centrally important repositories. So the number of remotes you have is actually usually small. It even seems in weird complex to me to even speak to two remotes. That seems a little headbendy. Like, why ah, would I? Because it's peer to peer, not right. client server. Everyone I understand is... that. I, I okay, understand so... that. But why would I? Why would? Is oh, is it because Bart's widgets? I don't trust Bart to be able to to write directly to my origin. That will be one reason, because you may want to route changes in a certain path, or it might simply be the case that I'm going to suggest a change to the contractor. The contractor have delivered a first version of the code. I haven't accepted it into my organization's central repository because it's garbage. I've taken it onto my Mac. I've tweaked it. I'm going to send it back to them to go, no, seriously, I think this is the right answer. What do you think? They're going to tweak it a bit more. And then they're going to send it to me. I'm going to go, actually, yeah, okay, finally, you've got it. And then they're going to send it 
to my corporation, or maybe I will, but right, it could root all sorts of different ways. So I at right. least I have at least two remotes because I'm talking directly to the vendor. Now I I'm saying this as if it's real because it is real. With my work hat on, I interact with vendors using Git, and we have an institutional repository where we keep the master copies of everything we actually consider production. The so main when copies. I'm working, pardon the main copies. The main copies, exactly. Uh-huh. The primary is what I was trying to keep myself using. Okay. So I am interacting. So I have two remotes on my work laptop, one pointing at the vendor I'm working with and one pointing at our institutional repository. Hmm. Okay. Okay. But again, but because of that routing. Right. And again, all of that is, so Git doesn't care, right? The only thing that determines how many remotes you need is the policies, procedures, and practices that you decide to put on top of the technology. The technology could have infinity many remotes. Right. It'd be chaos, but you could do it. Okay. So but I, I the can next see bit why of, you're saying that you'd have few. You would have few. You, you really okay. do have few. The most remotes I have ever had on a project is three. Origin, Upstream, and Vendor. Okay. So the next bit of lingo that we need to define are the very Englishy sounding words fetching, pushing, and pulling. Fetch, push, pull. They have very specific meanings. So before a Git repository can meaningfully communicate with one of its remotes, it needs to know what exists at the remote. What commits does the remote contain? What branches does the remote contain? What tags does the remote contain? Believe it or not, Git takes a full copy of every one of its remotes at every opportunity it gets. And the act of updating your copy of the content of your remote is called fetching. Now, it stores all of that remote content on separate branches, named, as it happens, after the remote they belong to. Okay, I'm I'm going to pause you again. Sorry, a lot mm-hmm. of questions, but the more you talk, the more I learn. Mm-hmm. I don't remember ever seeing fetching in the last couple of years I've been using Git. Correct, because fetching is so important, all the GUIs do it for you automatically. Because until they fetch, they can't show you the little arrow to tell you how many changes there are waiting for you on the server. So fetching so you- is just finding out, okay, let me go check. Let me see what you haven't got. All right, now I know. What do you want to do with it? Yes, it does that. It also actually takes all the commits and brings them down. From that point in time, all of those commits already exist on your computer. But, but it they're not applied in, them. You haven't merged them into your local branches. Right? Lordy, lordy, lordy. So so the... the <laughs> where are they? You have a copy of the remote on inside your repository, and it's actually named name of remote forward slash name of branch. So if you have one remote called Origin, then let's say you have the world's simplest repository. It has one branch called Main. Okay. And you have one remote called Origin that has one branch called Main. Okay. You actually have two branches. You have Main and Origin slash Main. Okay. Because they don't and bother every... saying local slash Main. The local yeah, exactly. Is local is implied. Okay. Exactly. All right. Exactly. Okay. So... Every time you open a GUI, it's going to have done a fetch to get the latest stuff from the remote and to bring it down to that branch locally called 
origin slash main. <laughs> Branch locally called origin slash main. You're trying, you're killing me, but I, I know, I think I know what you mean. I'm trying to picture where that data is. It's in your repository as, as another branch. It is added to your repository as a branch with a special name that says it came from over there. But it is actually on your computer. You take a copy of it. And the reason that's really important is because you can get on an airplane and interact with a remote even though you have no connectivity because you have fetched it. Okay, so let's, any- keep, let's keep this super simple again. So I've got I've got one branch called main on local. I got one branch called main on remote. I've mm-hmm. I've uh, and all that exists in my entire repo is an index.html file, and it says okay. Hello but world. how many commits? How many commits are there? Because Git only cares about commits. Have you committed five changes to that file? In which case, what actually exists are five commits, each commit consisting of one file. Well, we haven't. You have to have committed so at many least words once. so fast. I can't answer because I'm still trying to get my question out. So I've got index.html in in my local uh in local and it says hello world. But on uh on the server on in GitHub, somebody has put an exclamation point in it. You've you're also part of this. So there's two okay. of us here. So you've added an exclamation point and you've committed that up to that to that repo. That's okay. it's merged up into main. There is it, so there's a difference. So when okay. fet, when that fetch happens, mm-hmm. and it gets that commit that had that exclamation point added mm-hmm. to that one file, where is that exclamation point on my computer? It where, is are sitting there two on your hard drive. Of, are there two it copies is, of index.html sitting there? At least, right? If that repository has existed for a while, no, this is all five... that's happened, Bart. Don't scare me with more. That's all that's happened. There's, so you're saying there's... there was one commit which had the original version of index.html and one change has been made. So there yes. are now a total of two commits in the universe. There's your commit and there's my commit. No, all I did was pull it down. There's only one commit. You've put, you've made a no, change. No, 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 no. Okay, if you had a file, there was a commit, right? I couldn't have added an exclamation point until you committed once. So you had to have written the file and committed it once for there to be anything for me to add to an exclamation I'm just simplify this. I just pulled it I down know, for GitHub. I know, you simplified it to I the point that it I didn't make commit sense. It. I didn't commit it. You, com- you didn't you- commit it, then I have nothing I can... Then I, there was nothing for me to edit. You I wrote can't. it. You wrote index.html and put hello world in it. You put it up on GitHub. I pulled it down. Then you added an exclamation okay, so- point to it, put it up on GitHub, and now I've opened my Git client. All I've, all I've done is downloaded this to my computer. Okay, so there's two commits. My original commit and the new commit. There are two commits. But I already had that one. Okay, but you still because have... Because right, I pulled it down. Git, correct. But in Git universe, a commit is the atom, right? Everything is in a commit. That's fine. So, That's fine. But my question okay. is, where's that? Is there a second copy yes. on my computer of index.html at the point that yes. the fetch has happened? Yes. Thank you. Yes. That's yes. what I've been trying to get you to answer. Okay. So it yeah, actually not- does exist twice. All the files that have been changed when the fetches happen, those exist, those exist more than once on the computer. Yes. If they're different, yes. Right, right. That's what I mean. Okay. Because remember that Git does 
Git doesn't duplicate files because it uses hashes to name them. So if if my remote contains 500 commits that you also have, mm-hmm. each it, of those is referenced twice but stored once because they yes. have the same hash. Sure, sure. So logically they exist twice, but physically in terms of your disk space, they only exist once. But so the depending example on whether I gave, it does exist it, twice. Where it's but if just they're different, it exists one each, yes. Yes, got it. But the point okay. being, your computer has a copy of every version of every file in mm-hmm. your local repository and every version of every file in every remote. So if you had two remotes and there were 2,000 commits in every remote, you would have your local 2,000 commits, 2,000 commits from the first remote and 2,000 commits from the second remote. You would have 6,000 commits. Logically. Logically. Any of them that are the same are... I wouldn't have triple the number of files. No, because they'd be deduplicated as appropriate. Right, and I've never been unclear on that part. I, I wanted to understand what fetching was because I needed to understand it in that context. That it So it, it checks to see what's changed. It actually brings those changes to you, the commits. Yeah. And then it's waiting. Correct. So you basically have a full copy of every remote right there in your repository. Every branch, every commit, every tag. Mm-hmm. Right, so they really do come to your computer, which is why you can disconnect from the internet and still continue to work mm-hmm. with yeah, your remote. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, I had that. I had that piece. Okay. Okay. Well, no, that's really important. So that is that is what fetching is. It is updating that local copy of the remotes, and because it's so important, the uh, um, Git Kraken or code thingy that you like. Ah. Source tree. It's Source a tree, very unmemorable name. I often sit here thinking before I can remember the name to to open I'm it. Glad in it's a, not just me. I, th- I thought it was just me had a blind spot for it. I mean, okay. it makes sense. It's source tree. Tree. It's a great yeah, name. I, it just doesn't stick. Yeah, I get Kraken sticks because it has a, it has a Kraken. It has like a big squid monster. Well, and you type command space git and it finds it. <laughs> Actually, no, you're right. That's the key because I find all of my apps by just hitting command space and typing. Right. Um, so okay. fetching is so critical that all of the GUIs are doing it all the time, which okay. is why when I make a change on GitHub, you see it immediately. You haven't actually seen it immediately. There was a git fetch performed, but it's just doing it all the time. So that's fetching. Mm-hmm. Then if you have a change on your local repository that you want to add to my remote rep- to our remote repository, the act of taking a commit from you to a remote is called pushing. So you push commits to remotes, mm-hmm. and the act of merging a commit from a remote into one of your local branches is called pulling. Okay. So that's it. Fetch, push, pull. There are three words I wanted to get clear. So we've already mentioned the naming conventions of origin and upstream. I want to mention the concept of a bare repository. Hmm. So every single human being who is editing code will have a full repository that includes the most important part for a programmer writing code, a working copy, right? You have checked out a commit as your working copy, which you're editing or viewing or interacting with. 
right? That is, I mean, otherwise you don't have anything useful, right? The working Remind copy me again, is... the working copy, I haven't committed back. I haven't committed to my local repo yet. Is that correct? You might have done. I mean, you're, oh. so at the point in time where there are no changes, right? When you, t- when you type git status and it says working copy is clean, then your working copy is the same as whatever commit is currently checked out. Okay. Right, but the working copy is in the finder. You can poke about at it. But there could be 500 other commits, but you can't poke about at them in the finder because they're not in your working copy. Right? Only one of them exists in the finder at any one moment in time for you to poke about in. And that is your local copy. For some reason, working copy is yet to cement. And I know I've asked you to explain it every time you've said it. And it, it it doesn't stick. For me. So say what you just said a minute ago, you said you could have 500 changes, but they're not in your working copy. Well, how are they not in your working copy? Okay, so you your Git repository is a folder. Yes. And that folder contains a database of every single commit that makes up the repository. Yes. That database is in a hidden folder that you don't see. Yes. So if you were in the finder and there were no working copy, you would see an empty folder. Okay. The, so right. you just told me what isn't a working copy, an empty Okay, folder. everything you see is the working copy. When you, open, when you open your repository in your favorite code editor and you see files, that's your working copy. When you open your favorite repository in the Finder and you see index.html, that's your working copy. Okay. That, that's just what I've got. That's just my repo. Correct. Yes, yes, yes. That's it. That's well, as simple why, as it why is. is it, why isn't it just my repo? Why has that got a separate name as though it's okay, some but magical it, it is something magical. Your repository is a database of every single commit that has ever happened. Mm-hmm. The one copy you are currently viewing is a a subset of that database that is presented to you as normal files. Oh, it's the current status of it. It's the current version as you're messing with it. Okay. Right. But if you check out a different commit, then the working copy changes to whatever was in that commit. If you check out another branch, the working copy changes to that branch. So the working copy is the bit you're working on. Okay. So the working copy is what I can see in the finder. Yes. Gotcha. Okay. So every person writing code needs a working copy. Because otherwise their editor will simply show them nothing, right? Right. Now, the server sitting in the cloud doesn't need a working copy. All it needs is a database of every commit. Therefore, the copies of repositories in GitHub don't have working copies. Oh, wait, the, so the, the files are actually there. The database is there, but there's no copy to interact with in the finder because the sysadmins in GitHub really couldn't be bothered looking through everyone's repository in finder windows. They just need the database, which is the hidden folder. So the ones stored in the cloud are only the data, and they are called bare repositories. That's really upsetting to me. So there's no index.html <laughs> file up there. It's not that there is a file that exists as data in a database. Okay, so 
the the H E L L O W O R L D exclamation point is there, but it's in a database, not in an Correct. HTML file. file. Oh, that's really upsetting. Okay. <laughs> I can live with it though. We call them bare repositories, and by convention, and purely by convention, they are stored in folders whose name ends in .git, okay. which is why the URLs you get when you ask GitHub to tell you the URLs of a repository end in .git, because they are pointing mm. at bare repositories. Okay. That's, that's all there is to a bare repository. And so if you were running a NAS, you would have a bare repository on that NAS. If you were doing oh. it by the book. Okay. Huh. So the other final piece in the, well, the second final, the penultimate piece in the puzzle here. So we have this concept of fetching, right? Which gets every single commit, every single branch, and every single tag, and puts them in your repository named, name of remote forward slash whatever. So origin forward slash main. Okay. Yes. Or whatever is the branch name. Yeah, so exactly. It's remote name forward slash branch name or okay. remote name forward slash tag name. And every git so. command that we've learned so far that will work on a branch will be perfectly happy if you say remote slash, you know, name of remote slash name of branch. So really what you're doing all the time is you're doing a git fetch followed by a git merge of, say, it's basically git merge origin slash main into main is what you're really doing all the time. So you're fetching the data and then merging the branch over there called main with the branch here called main. Okay. So it's a git merge. And you could manually type that git merge every single time. But in reality... You have these relationships that exist, right? You almost always want to merge origin slash main into the local main. Over and over and over again. Hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of times. Right. So why why would you want to just have to remember that all the time? Well, you don't, is the answer. Git has your back. You can tell Git, make this local branch track... So the keyword Git uses is track this remote branch. So what you're basically saying is, I want you to connect this local branch named main to this remote branch named origin slash main. And every time there's a change on that one, you know, your your GUI will show you the number of changes and let you merge them in if you like, which it calls pulling. So right. so when you open up source tree, the branch origin slash main and the branch main have been configured to track each other by the Git GUI that you used. It did that it was for, done for it did you. it automatically for me. It did it automatically for you, at the same time it automatically named the remote origin. So it actually did two things for you automatically. So that answers the question. The reason you heard me pause there was because I was checking something. I went into the source tree menus and looked for something called track. And the only thing available was stop tracking. Because you are currently tracking on that branch. But I never told it to track. Correct. But the reason is because... tracking just says, I want these two things to know about each other. And yet, every time I still have to pull, 
And every time right. it says, well, do you really want to merge it into main? Right, because you're in control, right? Just because someone on the far side has made changes on the far side doesn't mean you're ready to bring them into your working copy. You might want to finish what you're doing before you merge those changes in. Right, but but it, I still have to tell it where to merge into, even though it's already tracking it. It always says, no, do you want to merge not into... No, get cracking. No, and get cracking, the, the, there's just a number three and a down arrow, or a number two and a down arrow, and you click the down arrow, and those two changes go into the right branch. So we're going to talk in a second about the branch that I'm on right now. I had to answer the question, do I want to merge it into that uh, branch? We're on a different branch. We're not on main. ask you the branch track, because today we're using a new branch for the first time called PBS 12-WIP. 1-12, but yeah. uh, Right. So so it doesn't know about that one. That's why it it had to ask the question? Okay. Yes. Okay. All right. When you answer that question, you actually set up the tracking. Because you didn't have a local oh. branch named PBS 112. Okay, so the second time, I wouldn't have to answer the question because it would correct. be tracking because I said, make this exist. Okay. Correct, correct. So the GUI, what the GUI actually did for you is create a new local branch named PBS 112-WIP and track origin slash PBS 112-WIP. Okay. So it did two steps for you when you pushed that button. It made the local branch and it tracked it to the remote. Okay. And from that point forward, you can now, the changes will now flow in the sensible way automatically. And 99.99% of the time, for your own sanity, you will want the name of the local branch to be the same as the name of the remote branch you're tracking. Okay. They don't have to be. The but command, there's, the, no, the, there's no value in making that un, that conversion in your head every time. There is rarely value, but not never. In my professional working life, I do about 1% of the time track branches with different names. Hmm. And the reason is very simple. We have a naming convention within our organization. And the contractor we work with has a different Oh. naming convention within oh. their organization. Okay. So I track my branch with our naming convention and they track their branch with their naming convention. And I just, I have basically said, sensible name to us maps to silly name they use. <laughs> That's my judgment. Okay. <laughs> and they have a very different opinion and they say that silly name those Maynooth people use, we'll track that with our sensible and sane local name. Okay. So you can do it asymmetrically if you have a good reason, but don't do it willy-nilly because you'll just drive yourself insane. <laughs> okay. And that's why the Git Kraken GUI, when, when you first try to take down a branch that you don't have a local copy of yet, it will create it with the same name and track it with the same name so that you don't have weird things happen. Okay. Okay. But there's, it, it's, not, it's not an assumption that the name has to be the same. I, I'm I'm glad you explained that because I've always wondered what that extra step I would see. And I didn't notice it was only happening sometimes, but I was just like, okay, press okay every time. Yeah. So what's happening is, so I make a new branch every time named name of episode dash whip. So you're constantly making new branches and tracking. But now I'll know why. Correct. I'm so call one final thing we need to talk about today is the URLs. Okay. So I have said a remote is a name that maps to a URL. Right. Okay, well, what are these URLs? Well, 
whether you're talking in Git world or any other world that uses URLs, URLs will are of the form URL scheme colon some sort of information describing the where, right? Now, most of the time, we actually think it's colon slash slash because almost all URL schemes, the address starts with slash slash. So HTTP colon slash slash someplace. HTTPS colon slash slash someplace. But actually, they don't all have the slash slash because mail2 is mail2 colon email address. There's no slash Mm -hmm. slash on a mail2. That is a URL with the scheme of mail2. Anyway. Git supports five protocols, Mm. and it supports four URL schemes to get to those five protocols. What we have here is a galloping case of legacy leftover garbage. (laughs) So there are five protocols. We shall be using two. Okay, good. You're not going to make us learn the other ones. No, I will mention their existence so that you know about them in case you come across them. And you'll know to run away. Uh, (laughs) So the simplest scheme for adding a remote, and this is going to make your head explode, the simplest URL scheme for adding a remote is called local. (laughs) Basically, you can have two repositories on the same file system, and you just reference them to each other using their file path. So. That's Wait, actually very useful if you have file a file path. You mean where right. the working copy is? No, where the, where the repository is. So imagine you have a NAS. Well, that NAS is going to be mounted onto your local file system at slash volume slash name of NAS. So you right. can say, add me a remote called my NAS, and the URL is simply forward slash volumes forward slash Allison's NAS forward slash Allison's great repo dot git. That is called a remote, even though it's on the same file system. In fact, it could be, could be in the, it could be in the next folder. It doesn't matter. It's called a remote because it's not inside the repository. Yeah, but it's just another file on your computer. It's a path. So that's that's correct. It's just a file path. Okay. So that's called the local protocol, and the URL scheme for it is file colon slash slash. So. If a URL starts with file colon slash slash, it's just another file on your file system, which Git calls the local protocol. But that's actually the default, so you can leave off the file colon slash slash and just give the folder name. So you can use, as a URL, a folder name, and Git will be perfectly happy. That is No, the no slashes, no nothing. I just, mean, unless it has slashes. To I was going to say, just right. a, an actual working path. So it could just, if it's in, like, if it's one folder up, it could be dot, dot, slash, other repo, dot, okay. git. Okay, but so this is only for when you're referencing something that is on your local computer's file system. Correct. And on the file system doesn't mean on the computer, right? It could be on a NAS. Right. It but could it's, be it's, on it's, an external hard drive, but it's on the file system. But that file system is, in the case of the of the NAS, it's mounted, so therefore Correct. it's considered a local product or local URL. Correct. So that's the simplest scheme. Okay. Very straightforward, and that's the one we're going to spend most of our time using in our examples, because it mm. means we don't need to run a server. We can okay. just have files in our computer, and we can learn how to do pushes and pulls and fetches and all that stuff without having okay. to run servers. 
Now, obviously, that doesn't help you get to stuff sitting in the cloud. So when Git first came out, they made the terrible mistake of reinventing the wheel. They went, oh, we need to have our repositories talk to each other. Therefore, we need to have a Git server. Therefore, we need to have a special Git protocol for talking over the network. So they invented their own protocol and they made their own URL scheme, git colon slash slash. Okay, that's fine. It, no, it isn't because it sucks. It absolutely positively sucks. It has no authentication, no security. Okay. It has only one use in life to be a read-only world-readable copy using a protocol no one uses anymore. So it has zero uses. So that's one of the ones we don't want. That's one of the ones we ignore. Are you going to tell us when we get to the good ones? I am. Okay. I won't get all excited until you tell me then. So the Git protocol, it was used. I remember using it. It was horrible. It sucked. We very, very quickly decided that was a terrible idea. And the simplest thing to do when you have an insecure protocol is to wrap it in SSH. Just wrap some SSH around it and it suddenly becomes secure. You use SSH for the encryption and you use SSH for the authentication. So that is the next thing that happened in the history of Git is people started to use Git over SSH. And so the URLs became SSH colon slash slash username at server forward slash file path. And to this day, you can go to GitHub and you can clone a repository with an SSH URL. But I'm not going to get excited because you didn't tell me it's a good one yet. Correct. Because you'll notice on GitHub, it's not the default. The default on GitHub is good old fashioned HTTPS. Because the next logical step is, hang on a second, we have a really good protocol for the internet. It's called the Hypertext Transfer Protocol, or HTTP, and it even has a secure variant called HTTPS. Am I allowed to get excited? You are, but you need to know that they did it twice. It took them two goes, two bites of the apple. And I kid you not, the actual Git documentation refers to their first attempt as dumb HTTP. That is actually how they label it. The dumb HTTP protocol, which was replaced with the smart HTTP protocol. Their words, not mine. Thankfully, in 2021, all the Git servers that use HTTP use smart HTTP. The difference in dumb and smart is that dumb is read-only, smart is read and write. So for us, there will be two protocols, local and HTTPS. That's nice kind of obvious now that you got to the end of the story, right? You right. T- it's a sensible landing funny, point. But, but it's like when you're talking local, just give it the path. And when you're talking about the internet, use HTTPS. Bing, bing, bing. Seems obvious. Okay. Right. Infinitely obvious, but it took, there's a lot of garbage in between those two endpoints. So we're on the two ends of the spectrum and that's all we're going to talk about in this series. But it is important to know the others exist and how we got there in the end. They got it right in the end. Right. So that is where I want to leave it for today, because I think you'll agree that's quite a bit to digest. Oh, it is. Yeah. You told me it was going to be a foundational one. This is one of those uh, posting on the horse in the barn, not getting to ride yet. But I think it was a it was a good one. I certainly uh, got confused enough to make it worth the trouble. <laughs> and that's why you add so much value, because if I just read out the notes, people would not have gotten nearly as much out of this episode as I'm hoping they have. Thanks to your questions. I hope so. And I'll keep asking you what working copy is, but it seems a little bit stickier. We're getting there. We're getting there. It's post-it note glue level now. (laughs) (laughs) That's a great analogy. Stiff wind and it's gone, though. (laughs) 
Indeed. Well, uh, look, we'll stick it back up again next week and the week after. All so right. where we're going next is obviously we're going to start making ourselves some local remotes. As much of an oxymoron as that is, you now know that does actually make sense to have a local remote. Is there a reason so, you're not going to have us just do like a GitLab or a GitHub or a Bitbucket or something? Because then you're you're into a three repository scenario, right? Where you have my copy that you then fork and then you download. We are going there. That is our destination. Yeah. But for yeah, now... This will probably force us to understand it more than just letting letting the internet do it for us, right? Correct, because GitHub, one of the reasons GitHub is so popular is because it does a lot for you. GitHub is really good, but that's not good for learning. <laughs> right? Oh, come Great on, spoon feed me. No. Yeah, you know, just kidding. The, just the, kidding. Uh, I mean, I think one of the one of the things I've gotten a lot of feedback on in this whole series is that people have been using Git for years. Like, oh, now I know what the GUI does, right? So the same concept yeah. applies here. We we want to actually learn what's happening, and then GitHub becomes our friend because we now know what it's doing for us automatically. But it's still doing it, and we can do it too. So anyway, that is where we'll call it a day. Um, uh, so uh, I believe, unless you have any more questions, no. In that case, until next time, happy computing. If you learn as much from BART each week as I do, I'd like you to go over to lets-talk.ie and press one of the buttons over there to help support him. He does 98% of the work here. I'm just the stooge that listens to him and asks the dumb questions. If you go over to lets-talk.ie, you can support him on Patreon, you can donate via PayPal, or you can use one of his referral links. I really hope you'll go over and help him out. In the meantime, you can contact me at Podfeet or check out all of the shows we do over there over at podfeet.com. Thanks for listening and stay subscribed.